Well, if you have a Bible with you, you can open to James chapter 1. We're going to continue our study through James this morning, and we're going to uh, jump right into God's Word. We have a, a longer sermon this morning. We're talking about a very important, delicate, complicated topic of homosexual desire. And what does the Bible teach us about that? And you're going to find as we go along, my introduction is uh, longer than usual. It'll take me a little longer to get to my, my main points and just so you can kind of pace yourselves. But we're going to uh, jump right into to God's Word. This is James chapter 1, starting in verse 12, the Word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Our great Father in heaven, we trust you. We are your children because we have come to trust not only in your love, but in your truthfulness, that you will lead us into all truth. And so, Lord, as we give our minds, uh, our hearts to this topic and to this text, we pray for your Holy Spirit uh, to be our guide and to lead us to Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. And so would you uh, be our teacher and help us as a church that our church would honor you in holiness in every area of our lives. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are uh, talking about the important topic of homosexual desire. And I know that uh, someone will immediately ask, uh, this passage that I just read doesn't say anything about homosexuality. Why are you dragging that topic into this passage? Well, I want to give a, a couple of answers to that. The first answer is that every week when we uh, give our sermons, we take a passage of Scripture and we explain the Scripture thinking about it in terms of one topic. And 95% of the time, that topic will come from the text itself. So if you're at our service last week, the, the topic was doubt. And clearly even the word doubt showed up several times in, uh, in that passage. But um, every once in a while, there is a topic in our culture that is important for us to speak about as a church. And even though a passage might not speak directly to that topic, the passage is, is important for understanding the, the cultural issue that we're all facing. And there are a ton of questions circling around 
the topic of if a gay person becomes a Christian and the Bible forbids men lying with other men and women lying with other women, what does that say about this Christian's sexual orientation? Are you supposed to just stop being gay when you become a Christian? Well, that question is tied up with the uh, biblical understanding of both desire and temptation. And this passage is one of the most important in the whole Bible explaining those two things. So the first reason we're uh, talking about this is because this passage is immensely important on the topic. The second reason that we're taking up this topic is that in every generation, there are certain cultural issues that most directly challenge the Word of God. And it is on those issues that it is most crucial that the church speaks clearly and lovingly. And you might say, well, it seems like the big cultural issue that we're facing this week is, is not homosexual desire, but race. Uh, why aren't we speaking about that? Well, we have spoken about that as a church. We've given sermons on that. It's been a big topic in the book of Exodus that we've been studying through the last couple of years. But there are other things that have happened in, in our culture just these uh, past few weeks. For one, our denomination just published a, a long-awaited study report on human sexuality that addresses theologically and pastorally the topics of homosexuality and transgenderism. So this is a very live topic in, in our denomination, in our community right now. Also, just within the last few weeks, our state uh, passed legislation requiring comprehensive sex education to all grades from kindergarten all the way up to grade 12 in the public schools. And the code says this, Comprehensive sex, sexual edu health education means recurring instruction in human development and reproduction that is age-appropriate and inclusive of all students regardless of their protected class status under Chapter 4960, the Revised Code of Washington. So what this is saying is all the way down to kindergarten, our children in our community will be learning about uh, sex education that honors uh, every sexual orientation. And actually, just within these last few weeks, also, Pixar released the first Disney film with a gay protagonist. It's a short film about a man coming out uh, as gay to, to his parents. And there are a few films that I have seen that depict two men kissing each other on the lips. And here you have that in a children's, uh, children's film. It's in children's movies, in children's education, that the sexual ethics of our generation are being most aggressively advocated. And so it turns out it's not just adults who need this sermon. Our children need this sermon. In politics, the media, in entertainment, in academia, we are constantly being indoctrinated by a worldview that is hostile to the sexual ethics of the Word of God. And so we absolutely, as a church, need teaching on this topic. And I've been uh, reading a book, uh, this book, I'll, I'll quote it later, on uh, the development of sexual ethics in the Roman Empire in the early church. And for the early church, sex outside of marriage, homosexuality, prostitution, the importance of consent, the wickedness of uh, sexual abuse, were huge issues that Christians throughout history 
have taken very seriously. And at crucial moments in church history, sexual ethics is what made the church so different from the world around it. We have to embrace that our understanding of sexuality is radically different than our culture. And, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that anyone looking at the sexual culture around us would say that our culture has sexuality figured out. Oh, they've actually nailed it. They've figured it out. They know what healthy sexuality is. And I think more and more people are going to be looking to us for an alternative understanding of sexuality. And so if you are a person who experiences same-sex attraction, we want you to know we are a church where you can talk about what you're experiencing, your desires. You can talk about it honestly. You can talk about it It's a place of gentleness, a place where of grace in Christ. But also, it is our duty of love to teach the vision of sexual ethics that God has intended for humanity. And right at the moment in history when the world is going to need clarity about a biblical alternative to the craziness around sex in our culture, many churches are capitulating to the demands of our culture to be tolerant of sexual sin. Now, our church has had a couple of sermons over the years on the, on the question, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? And I can't repeat everything that I've said in those sermons. You can go back to them. There's one in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And then recently in John chapter 8, we had a sermon on uh, homosexuality in the church. Uh, and during the sermon on John 8 about homosexuality in the church, I promised that we would come back to the difficult question, if the Bible says homosexuality is a sin, what are we going to tell someone to just stop being gay? Um, is, is it not, uh, it's not like that they just chose to be gay. And so basically the question is, okay, the Bible says that gay sex is wrong, but is homosexual desire, a homosexual orientation also a sin? A gay person becomes a Christian and wants to follow Jesus. Can they be a gay celibate Christian or does their repentance need to touch the very fact that they are attracted to the same sex? And of course, this is a very delicate question. It's complicated. The Bible does not give simplistic answers to complex questions. Simple answers are easy, but they are generally not loving and don't respect the full revelation of God in the Bible. The Bible recognizes a myriad of forces affecting the human person, spiritual, biological, social, psychological. And so this is an important topic that needs careful treatment. And so that's our goal this morning is to give this topic careful treatment. But there's one last thing that I want to say before we get started. We're a church that is committed to the inerrant word of God. And if you're listening to this sermon and you wonder, you know, how can anyone living in Bellingham, Washington in 2020 be so backward or so regressive to take seriously the teachings about sexuality written in the Bible 2,000 years ago? Why are we giving such weight to this dusty old book? Well, I'll tell you why. For me personally, I came to Jesus because I was lost. I had given myself over to the world and to the desires of my flesh, and it ruined my life. And Jesus says the way the lost are found is when they come and live under his rule in his kingdom. And he gave me new life. And so as a pastor, what is the loving thing for me to give you all as a people? 
more of what our culture is saying in movies, in music, in politics, in academia. Whatever you do, follow your passions wherever they lead you. Or to give you the word of God that found me when I was lost. Many people in our culture, culture feel lost sexually. And over the past generation, our culture has promised us that sexual liberation would save us from feeling lost. And there are a lot of people who have found that sexual liberation did not deliver on what it promised. And so what people need is the grace and truth that is offered to them in Jesus. And that's what we're committed to as a church to give to you. That's what I'm committed to give to you as a pastor. And so this is all an introduction to the question, how should we think about homosexual desire? And there are four answers that I want to give to this passage uh, in James. Uh, there are four answers I want to give from this passage in James, and this is what they are. Homosexual desire is a trial. Homosexual desire is not from God. Homosexual desire is an uh, internal temptation. I'm going to explain what an internal temptation is. And fourth, homosexual desire is only overcome by new creation. So four things. Homosexual desire is a trial. It is not from God. It is an internal temptation. It is only overcome by new creation. Now, one last introductory remark. Even though, um, you know, I personally don't struggle with same-sex attraction, studying this topic has been immensely helpful for me in my own sanctification and battle with temptation and sin. And so I think uh, it, this sermon, in this sermon, you will, uh, you will find applies to all of us. And you'll be able to make bridges from these things even into your own life and your own sexual sins, your own sexual struggles and, and struggles with other sins. So I think it really applies to all of us, even though we're going to be focusing on this narrow topic. So four points this morning. And the first is this. Homosexual desire is a trial. And I think this first point is a word of compassion. Can you imagine a boy growing up in Christchurch who gets to puberty and to adolescence and all of a sudden finds himself having crushes on other boys? That is likely going to be a great trial for him. There's going to be shame and confusion that comes with that experience. And so I think to be a community of compassion, we need to understand that trial that that boy is facing in his adolescence and probably for the years that are ahead of him. And there are two important points that James makes about that in this passage. The first is that resisting temptation is a trial. Resisting temptation is a trial. And you'll notice that both the words trial and temptation are in this passage. Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And then in verse 13, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And this is the point that Pastor Jonathan made just a couple weeks ago, that the Greek word for trial and temptation are the same word. How are trials and temptations related? The answer is sin offers a temporary relief from suffering. Sin offers a temporary relief from suffering. So trials and temptations are both times when we might look to sin for relief. 
and C.S. Lewis points this out about uh, sexual temptation, that he says that when we are feeling tempted sexually or to act out uh, in a, a sinfully sexual way, we are experiencing suffering. And the lie that we think during that suffering is that the only way to be released, uh, uh, relieved of the suffering is to indulge the sin. The sin is what relieves us from the suffering. And what we actually need to know is that eventually the suffering will go, to, go away. We just need to wait for it to go away. And God promises that it will. So anytime someone is going to obey God, it means that they will forego the comfort of sin and therefore have to trust God in the midst of their suffering. And this will be a significant part of the experience of a disciple who experiences same-sex attraction and refuses to indulge the flesh. And that should lead us to compassion. That people who are going through that suffering, who are experiencing that suffering, they need people around them to encourage them and to be with them and to know what they're going through and to pray for them, that we need the body of Christ around us. And we understand that this temptation is a trial. It, it draws us together and helps us to build one another up and to strengthen one another in community. So resisting temptation is a trial, but also James says that resisting temptation is a happy life. Now that might seem paradoxical that resisting temptation is a trial and resisting temptation is a happy life. Um, but the reason this second point uh, is important is because you might think it is cruel for the Bible to tell someone that they have to suffer, that they can't indulge their sexual desires. But James does not see it that way. Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial or under temptation. And the word for blessed, it really means happy. Happy is a man who remains steadfast under trial, who doesn't give in to sin. It's actually sad is the one who does give in to sin. And many of us know that. This is not a, the kind of shallow kind of happiness that comes from little pleasures. What he is talking about is there is a joy that can even withstand the hardship of living under the curse of this fallen world. And the reason this is, is important is that there are all kinds of people who have lived a life indulging their flesh and after decades have come to the end of their life totally empty. They did not have the joy. Sin could not deliver the happiness it promised. And we as a church should not be embarrassed to say that the only blessed and truly joyful and happy life is the one lived in accord with the word of God. And anyone who thinks otherwise will find themselves in despair. Okay, so the first thing for us to appreciate about homosexual desire is that it is a trial. It's a form of suffering. And that should give us both compassion for someone who is facing it, but it should not uh, make us apologetic about the biblical mandate to sexual obedience to God's word. Suffering is an essential element of the Christian life for all of us. And because someone experiences trial and suffering does not mean they do not have a blessed life. That is a crucial truth in the Bible. And so the first thing is this, that, that we need to appreciate that homosexual desire is a trial. But the second thing we see in this passage is that homosexual desire is not from God. And the reason I say that is because gay sex is, is consistently and clearly forbidden 
by the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus uh, himself speaks against uh, sexual immorality, and he's a first century conservative Jew that definitely would have included everything in Leviticus 18, including homosexuality. And it's also been uh, the teaching of the church throughout the last 2,000 years. And the early church derived its sexual ethic largely from the Apostle Paul. And uh, in uh, the book, this book that I've been reading on the sexual ethics of the Roman Empire and the relationship of the church, that culture, uh, Kyle Harper is a, a professor of uh, classics at the University of Oklahoma. And it's amazing the parallels between the early church in the Roman Empire and the church now in our culture. And uh, this is what Kyle Harper says. For Paul, the sexual disorder of Roman society was the single most powerful symbol of the world's alienation from God. Paul draws on the deeply rooted association between idolatry, worshiping false gods, and sexual immorality. Idolatry and sexual immorality, they always go together in the Bible. Sexual fidelity was the corollary of monotheism, while the worship of many gods was in every way promiscuous. And he goes on later in that paragraph to say, the greater surprise that emerges in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans is the specific form of carnal decadence that encapsulated for the apostle the total depravity of the heathen world, same-sex love. Throughout the Bible, sexual deviance and idolatry are closely tied together. The sex of a culture mirrors its religion. And pagan societies that worshipped all kinds of God had sex with all kinds of people, male and female. And Christians and Jews who worshipped the one God, who was the husband to his bride, the church, or his people, his nation, had sex with one person, a husband with his wife. And the whole purpose of sex is to reflect the deep mystery of the love of God for his people. That is what sex is for. And so... Homosexual desire cannot come from God. It comes from our sinful, idol-worshiping nature. And that's why James says here in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Any desire we have that is contrary to what is pleasing to God did not come from God. It is the result of our sin nature. And that's why James goes on to say in, in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is allured and enticed by his own desire. And so when Lady Gaga writes a song called Born This Way, she's almost right. It's true. We are all born with <laughs> this way, with a sinful nature. And so her chorus in the first line, I'm beautiful in my way. That's true. You are beautiful in your way. And the second line, because God makes no mistakes. You're right. God makes no mistakes. But it's that third line. I'm on the right track. Baby, I was born this way. What's missing is the doctrine of original sin that we are all born with a corrupt nature. And, uh, and what's interesting, though, is that the LGBT community has evolved in its views on our uh, sexual desires, our sexual orientation. You know, uh, 20 years ago, 
People were fighting to say that we are born with a sexual orientation that is fixed, that's uh, immutable, that's maybe even in our genes or it's hereditary or something. Like, this is how we are born. But now uh, the LGBTQ community will increasingly say that our sexual orientation is fluid. It's changing throughout our life because our gender and our sexuality are, are uh, a social construct. They're affected by the experience in our life. So someone could go through their life and go through different periods with a different sexual orientation. And actually, we would say that's probably closer to what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not say why some people experience same-sex attraction and others don't. The Bible knows we are formed through a complex dynamic of spiritual, social, biological, and cultural forces. And so why some people experience same-sex attraction and others don't is mysterious to us. We should be slow to assume we know why someone is gay. And the Bible does not say that people necessarily choose it. The Bible says, actually, we did not choose our sin nature that we were all born with. And then we have experiences in our life that aggravate our, our sin nature and stir it up and make it stronger. That happens to all of us. So uh, the reason where these desires come from is mysterious. It's not necessarily ch chosen, but our choices do matter. And uh, Wes Hill, Wes Hill's a Christian who, who writes a lot about homosexuality and, and being a Christian, and he's got some problematic views. But in his book, Washed and Waiting, this is what he writes about his own experience. I know that whatever the complex origins of my own homosexuality are, there have been conscious choices I've made to indulge and therefore to intensify, probably, my homoerotic inclinations. As I look back over the course of my life, I regret the nights I have given in to temptations to lust that pulsed like hot itching sores in my mind. And so I cling to this image, washed. I'm washed sanctified, justified through the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so it's these desires we maybe didn't choose, but when we indulge them, they grow and they become stronger and they enslave us more deeply. And so it's a complex matter that ultimately don't come from the Lord. They come from our own sinful desires. And, and by the way, I should say, you know, some of you will be familiar with um, conversion therapy which has come on under a lot of uh, heat in recent years. Conversion therapy is counseling aimed at making gay people straight. And I think uh, the issue with at least some conversion therapy is not that it's trying to help people to walk in holiness in terms of their sexuality. You know, trying to honor God and honor His Word, that's not the problem. It's that it presumes to know why someone is gay in ways that aren't necessarily biblical. So for example, if a counselor says, well, this teenage boy has crushes on other boys because he did not have a close enough relationship with his father, we don't know that. That might be true, or that might be a factor. But let's just be clear, the Bible makes no mention of our upbringing as the reason for same-sex attraction. The only reason other than our sinful nature that all of us have for homosexuality is when a society worships idols, the consequence is that God gives that people, the people of that society over to their sinful desires, and that results in some people experiencing same-sex attraction. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1.
And so how should we understand homosexual desire? Already you see how complex it is. First, it's a trial, which should give us compassion for anyone who's experiencing it. But that doesn't mean that we should encourage people to avoid that trial by sinning against God. And second, homosexual desire comes from our original sin that we are all born with. So we should not uh, say that it came from God or that God made me this way, but also that means we should be slow to assume we know why one person experiences same-sex attraction and others don't. Okay, so now we come to our third point. So homosexual desire is a trial. Homosexual desire is not from God. It's from our, our sin nature. Third, homosexual desire is an internal temptation. Homosexual desire is an internal temptation. Now, this third point is one in which uh, my personal view has evolved over the past few years. Our elders have been really helpful to me in understanding this issue better. And you might think this third, you, maybe you think it's already been technical, this sermon. Well, this point is even more technical, but I think it's very important. And the main change that came in my thinking is in the idea that temptation is not a sin. Maybe that's something that you've thought or uh, heard said before, that temptation is not a sin. And I would have said, because I would say, well, temptation is not a sin. I'd say, well, a, a gay orientation is a temptation. Temptation is not a sin. You can be gay and be a Christian as long as you don't have gay sex. And in fact, I would have gone so far to say, well, Jesus has been tempted in every way that we have. That's what it says in in Hebrews. So he too must have faced homosexual temptation. And so homosexual attraction, orientation, or even desire is not necessarily sinful. And to me, that seemed like the logic seemed airtight. It made sense. But many Christians would probably sense that something doesn't quite feel right about that logic. And um, then I read a journal article on the topic of concupiscence. Concupiscence is a technical term for our sinful desires. And the article explained that theologians throughout history have recognized the difference between internal temptations and external temptations. We are all tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's why uh, uh, the world and the devil are external temptations. They're outside of us that are tempting us, but the flesh is an internal temptation that is from our sin nature. And Jesus did not have a sin nature. He was without sin. And that's why when we see Jesus tempted in the Gospels, he's only, he only experiences external temptations. He's tempted by the devil that he will give him all the kingdoms of this world. So he's tempted by the devil in the world. So Jesus was not uh, wrestling with homosexual desires. So when we say temptation is not a sin, what we really mean is that external temptation is not a sin. And uh, the question remains then, is internal temptation a sin. Well, James in this passage describes internal temptation this way, but each person is tempted when he is allured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, we are tempted not only by the world and the devil, but also by our own desires. And so it's not a sin to be tempted, 
it is a sin to tempt. And our own desires, our own sin nature is tempting us, which is a sin to tempt someone. And even if we're tempting ourselves. So in the case of homosexual desire, James is telling us that the desire itself is sinful, which makes sense if we desire anything that has not been given to us by God. Our desires are then against him and therefore need to be repented of. And I need to explain the significance uh, of this a little better, so bear with me. Several years ago, I was preaching to our church on, uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically the part where Jesus says that if anyone looks after a woman with lustful intent, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, many men have read that verse and say, you know, to never have a sexual thought about another woman is impossible. This is probably an impossible standard that no one can ever keep. And, uh, but then uh, Dallas Willard is a Christian author and philosopher I read on the topic, and he explained that, that, you know, looking at a woman with lustful intent does not mean having a sexual thought about her. Uh, he says to have sexual thoughts is human. It's what you do with those thoughts that Jesus cares about. Do you nurture those thoughts and grow them into a fantasy and get aroused by them? Then you have committed adultery in your heart. But not nurturing those thoughts is something we can do as Christians. And so it is possible to keep that command. And so uh, because of that, I thought, well, then there's nothing wrong with sinful sexual thoughts popping in your head. Those just temptation and temptation is not a sin. But what James is telling us is that those thoughts are coming from our own desires. And so our desire should be, our growth in Christ should be that those desires would be lessened. Our desires would be aligned with God's desires. And so we would have less of those thoughts. Now, some of you will hear that and you say, oh my goodness, the call to the Christian life just got a lot harder. It's enough for me to just not act out sexually. And now the lessen the thoughts that come into my head. I mean, that would be good. That would be helpful, but I'm not sure that I can control that or change that. And I'm afraid I'm just going to be discouraged by the demands of, of sanctif- sanctification from James. What do we say about that? Well, I want to add this point that struggling with desires is not as serious a sin as acting out. And I mentioned that our our denomination just published a a theological and pastoral paper on on human sexuality. It's got a great section. There's a gentleness to it that I want to read to you. And this is what it says. There is an important degree of moral difference between temptation to sin and giving in to sin. Even when the temptation is itself an expressing of indwelling sin, while our goal is the weakening and lessening of internal temptation to sin, right? I want less thoughts of, you know, impure thoughts popping into my head. Christians should feel their greatest responsibility, not for the fact that such temptations occur, but for thoroughly and immediately fleeing and resisting the temptations when they arise. And then I love this line. God is pleased with our sincere obedience, even though it may be accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. And so on the one hand to say we should, our sanctification should reach all the way down to our desires. And yet God is pleased with our efforts to flee from the temptations even when they arrive. And it says that if we don't make that distinction between being tempted to sin and actually acting out on that temptation, 
we will be discouraged that we are overcome uh, with shame every time a sinful desire pops into our head or into our heart. Know that God is pleased with us as we engage in the battle against our flesh. But what all this means is that when someone desires to honor God with their whole life, it is not enough to say that I won't engage in gay sex. I'll be a gay celibate Christian. Just like all Christians, we must seek to put even our sinful desires to death and want to have desires that honor God. And so we have said that homosexual desire is a trial, that it's not from God, but that it comes from our own sinful nature and is therefore an internal temptation, which is different from external temptation and is therefore sinful and for a disciple and must be put to death. Now up to this point, in this sermon, our culture would say that this teaching that I'm giving you is bigoted and is cruel. And all I can say is that I've never found the God of the Bible to be that way. But still, even some Christians would argue, you are saying that Christians need to repent of their gayness or same-sex attraction, but, stati but statistics say that it doesn't go away. So to say to someone they need to make it go away when that doesn't happen seems to be cruel. And I think for that question, we need our final point, that homosexual desire is only overcome by new creation. Homosexual desire is only overcome by new creation. And you see in verse 16 that James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And let's just pause on that verse. If you think this is a lot to think through, all that I'm explaining about the inner workings of desire and temptation in our heart, James tells us why we need to do this hard theological work is so that we would not be deceived. Um, but then he goes on in verse 17 and says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to uh, change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First fruits of his creatures. Now, this is an interesting verse because it's evoking the creation story. He says that last phrase of all God's creatures, he's brought forth by the word of truth. God's word brought forth all his creatures in the creation. And yet James is saying that in Christ, God's word makes us the first fruits of his creation, of all his creatures. What does that mean to be the first fruits of all his creatures? Well, what he's talking about is that God is making a new creation through Christ. All things will be redeemed and made new. There is coming a day when our bodies will be set free from corruption. We will be pure. We will honor God. And this day is coming in the future. And I think all of us feel a longing that we would be remade, that we could still be ourselves and yet we could be remade without the, the broken parts of who we are, free from our sinful desires. And this is precisely what is promised us in Christ. We experience it in part now, but in fullness in the future. And so all of us live in this tension of the already and the not yet. We are already a new creation in Christ. If you struggle with same-sex attraction or other sinful desires, and you are in Christ, you are now washed. 
You are a piece of the new creation. And yet, uh, and, and, but we are also not yet a new creation in Christ. And this t- tension helps us to not say to a gay person who becomes a Christian, you can't be gay anymore. That is partly true. Because being a Christian will now mean being gay is not your primary, identi- uh, primary identity. Your sexual orientation is not your identity. Your new identity is in Christ. You are already loved, holy, chosen, washed, justified, a child of the Most High God. But also, we are not yet what we will be. Throughout this life, we experience the remnant of our corrupted nature. It is like, likely that many gay people who become Christians will have a lifelong battle against their flesh. In that sense, sense, they didn't just get baptized and instantly stop being gay. And so I think this last point brings us full circle. In our first point, we said that we should have compassion for anyone, for any of you who are experiencing same-sex attraction. Know that this is a church where you can be honest and you will experience the grace and love that is offered in the gospel. But also we recognize that homosexual desire is not from God. It's an internal temptation arising from the sinful nature of our flesh. So all of us live this life now in the already not yet of the new creation, longing for the day that Jesus will make us new. This life is a pilgrimage of waiting till we appear before God in Zion. So again, I think we have reason for compassion, that the pilgrimage is hard, but our shepherd will walk with us the whole way. May he see see each one of you to that final day. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us this deep text that um, searches our hearts and our desires and the temptations we face. Lord, I know that these are hard words. There may be someone listening for whom these words are especially hard or challenging. I pray that you would assure them and speak to them by your Holy Spirit of your presence and strength with us in this pilgrimage. Lord, we trust you in our suffering, in our trials, and we ask you to overcome our sinful desires, to put them to death, both those who struggle with same-sex attraction, but all of us who uh, uh, face the, um, the, the desires of the flesh, the remnant of our sin nature that is within each one of us. Uh, give us holiness, clothe us with the love of Christ, wash us, And we ask in his name, amen.